Welcome to church, everybody. It is so good to see all of you. Merry Christmas to everybody that is here, to all of your families. Merry Christmas to everybody who is watching online and at all of our locations. We are glad that everyone is here with us today to hear a word from God. If you have your Bible, would you take it out? If you need a Bible and you would raise your hand, the ushers would be happy to give you one. Hold it up nice and high. Let's go ahead and make this declaration of our faith together. Ready, go. This is my Bible. It is my primary source of spiritual nourishment. I will read it every day and become all that God wants me to be. My mind will be renewed. My life will be transformed. I will become fully surrendered to Christ. Therefore, I will hide his word in my heart so I can be all that God has destined me to be. Amen. Would you remain standing in honor of God's word? We're going to two places in scripture today. The first one is in the book of Isaiah, and the second one is in the gospel of John. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, and then verses 5 and 6. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. And in verse 6 says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and we will call his name Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And then John's Gospel, the first chapter, beginning in the first verse says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Today on this Christmas Eve, I want to minister to you from the subject, a light has dawned. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we come to you and we thank you for utterance and teaching in the Holy Spirit that moves and ministers to every single heart, and every single ear that hears this message. Would you reveal yourself in deeper ways to us today in Jesus' name? And everybody said, you may be seated. Well, one of the signs that tells us that we are in the Christmas season is that lights are everywhere. New York City is, of course, aglow with Christmas lights, and you have the big tree lighting in Rockefeller Center. Malls are filled with Christmas lights. Houses everywhere are decorated with Christmas lights. Churches are lit up with Christmas lights, and people drive around just to see lights. Matter of fact, um, there was something on the internet, 50 spots right here in the New Milford area that you can go and visit houses that have wonderful Christmas lights. My wife and I, we drove around last year to look at Christmas lights and sh- she Googled this thing. It was a, this beautiful house and about an hour from here that had, you know, themed lights and you kind of just sit in front of it and you listen to the radio and it plays all these music. And it, so we were so excited about it and we drove all the way there one hour to get there and we got there was the most disappointing thing I've ever seen in my entire life. It was so lame. I'm like, really? This is over-advertised. And so we said, we're going to see some lights, though. And so we Googled something else nearby. And, and at first, it seemed promising because when we pulled up, it was a farm. And it was a line of cars waiting to get in. I said, this is going to be absolutely amazing. And then by the time we got into the farm, now we can't go back out because there's all sorts of cars behind us. There's all sorts of cars in front of us. And it was like a thousand blow up. 
Christmas things that were dirty and old and fallen over and the lights were half lit and everything like that. I said, my God, I said, can I get any good Christmas lights around here? And to make matters worse, we wanted mafungo. Anybody know what mafungo is? Some of you do. We said, we, we said we're going to go to a Puerto Rican restaurant. We're going to get some mafungo. We go to the Puerto Rican restaurant, and they're closed, and we can't even get any mafungo. But this is what Christmas, right, for a lot of people is all about. It's driving around, seeing lights. The lights are everywhere, but there is a message in the light. As disappointing as those lights that we traveled to go see was, there is one light that has dawned over two millennia ago, and that does not disappoint. He is bright shining as the star. His radiance is captivating. His power is matchless and mighty. He dispels darkness. He brings hope. He gives life. He provides joy to anyone and everyone who choose to receive him. And this light was masterfully packaged for us and the world as a baby because we all know that a baby is the perfect picture of life and light. And of course, I'm talking about the one Isaiah calls wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father and prince of peace, and his name is Jesus. And really, that is the first thing that I want to draw your attention to, that Jesus is the light. Don't don't miss the message all around us, shouting out, if you will, to a deaf world. With all of these lights, why are lights so intricately attached to Christmas? Because Jesus is the light. Scripture tells us in 1 John chapter 1, verse number 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. One of the things that's astounding to me is, I don't know if you've ever uh, studied or heard about uh, NDEs, near-death experiences. There are over a million of them, by the way, on record by people who come from all sorts of different religious and cultural backgrounds and span time and centuries and so on and so forth. And almost every single one of them who comes back to tell about it says that one of two things happened to them. Either they descended into this bottomless pit, they saw fire, they heard screams, or they went really rapidly into the presence of this great big blinding light. And people think, well, that, what does that even mean? Well, it's God trying to tell us that he is the light. And John is so serious about us not missing the message that Christ is the light that when you read John's introduction to his gospel, John chapter 1, after he tells us in our opening text that he is the light, that he is the life, that he is the creator of the world, he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and notice what he says, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. In other words, John said, this is not something that I just looked at. This is something that was so amazing that I beheld it. It's more than just, you know, a a, a casual glance. It's something that you have to take in. And John is saying that I took this in with my own eyes. If you fast forward into one of the epistles that he writes, 1 John chapter 1, verse number 1, listen to what John says so we don't miss the message that God is the light. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, 
which we have looked upon, our hands have handled concerning the word of life. The life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. John is saying, be sure you don't miss this. What I'm telling you is something that we heard directly. We heard it with our own ears. We saw directly. We saw with our own eyes. We touched him literally with our own hands. We heard. We saw. We touched. You have to understand John is writing in such a way that he is culturally connecting to people and and his verbs correspond to the varieties of witness attestations in ancient jurisprudence. What do you mean? He's doing more than just having a conversation. He is swearing a deposition. John is saying that I want you to understand how significant what I'm about to tell you is that Jesus, the light of the world, actually appeared. I want you to understand without any reservation in your mind. I'm putting my hand on the Bible. I'm swearing an oath. I'm telling you in the strongest language that I possibly can that this is not fiction. This is not made up. This is not just something that I heard about. This is something that I beheld. I saw it in every sense of the word, that light, the light of life, the light of the world has come. And Jesus himself goes out of his way when he speaks to let everybody know that he is not a light, but the light. John chapter 8, verse number 12. He says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What is particularly interesting is it's when Jesus made this statement about himself. Jesus is literally standing in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles, a.k.a. the Feast of Lights. And the Feast of Lights was a commemorative uh, by the children of Israel, commemorative festival where they celebrated God moving them from Egypt through the wilderness into the promised land. And it was when they tabernacled in tents as they were journeying through the promised land. And you remember how God led them? He led them with a pillar of fire. And so they celebrated this. They they were remembering that that was actually the presence of God that was tangibly with them during that journey out of slavery and into the promised land. And of all the days that Jesus could pick to tell everybody to stand up in the temple and to announce, I am the light of the world. He does it on the festival of tabernacles. Why? Because every Jewish person there knew exactly what he was saying because it was when they were celebrating the pillar of fire who they knew as God. Jesus was letting them know, I am God. Don't miss the message of the lights all around us, everywhere. And that's that not just anyone, but God, the light of the world, came to save us from our darkness. Now, why does Jesus want us to know that he is God, the light of the world. Well, think about what the sun, S-U-N, does and realize that the sun, S-O-N, does exactly the same thing. Jesus is the light that dispels darkness and gives hope. When the sun comes up over the horizon in the morning, 
Isn't there like just a fresh, just wave of hope that surges through your being? And it just puts a smile on your face. You know, I was in Siberia or pretty close to Siberia one time for a speaking engagement and they don't get hardly any sun. It's like dark. I don't know the exact. It's like 22 out of 24 hours of the day. It's complete darkness. And if you're there for any length of time, it's quite depressing that you're always in this darkness. Have you ever stayed indoors for a long period of time? And then we stay indoors for a long period of time. It's almost like this, this sadness, this depression just seems to come over you. But when you walk outside, that the light dispels the darkness and it gives you this tremendous hope. In the words of the prophet Annie, what did she say? The sun will come up tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar that there will be some. What was she saying? That things aren't always going to be dreary. Things aren't always going to be hopeless because what does light do? Light dispels darkness and it gives us hope. The mercies of God, the scripture says, are new every morning. Notice again what our opening text says. It says, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. In scripture, darkness refers to both evil and sin and ignorance. And we see evil and sin and their effects all around us, don't we? Violence, injustice, abuse of power, sickness, poverty, grief, pain, rampant immorality in our society where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. And even part of the church is now becoming apostate. I don't know if you've noticed the latest pronunciation of the Pope, but if you haven't, Google it and you'll see. Even the church now is becoming apostate in terms of what it is acknowledging is right is actually wrong scripturally. And mankind is really ignorant when it comes on how do we cure this this evil and this darkness? And what do we do as a society? We look to government. We look to man. We look to Congress. We look to political saviors to cure the problem of evil and sin. And yet our world spins further and further into darkness and people become more and more blinded in their darkness. And it is against this darkness. Here comes Christmas. Christ comes with the Christmas message. And here's the message of Christianity and Christmas. Things really are that bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. No one in this world and nothing from this world can save us. Things are really that dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. This Christmas, the Christmas message is on those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Notice it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung. It says on the world a light has dawned. What is God telling us? Nothing from this world, nothing in this world, nothing that this world offers can deliver and save from the darkness, from the evil, from the sin. Nothing in this world can provide eternal hope. It took something from outside of this world. A light has dawned on the world. His name is Jesus and he came to save us from our darkness. But then notice also, just like the sun, Jesus is the light that gives life. We all know the sun is responsible for photosynthesis or the process by which plants utilize sunlight absorbed as chlorophyll to make food that we need for our lives and oxygen that we need to breathe from carbon dioxide and water. In other words, 
The sun is necessary for life. A simpler version of that would be, without the sun, we'd all freeze up. We need the sun for life. In the exact same way, Jesus is the light of the world or the life source of the world. Without him, we cannot have life. First of all, because he is the creator of all things according to John. That's why John says he was there in the beginning. All things were made by him. And then in our text, verse number four, he says, in him was life and that life was the light of man. Where did all begin? Where did life come from? God. In the beginning, God. Life came from God. He is the creator. He is the one who formed man from the dust of the ground. He is the one whose breath gave man life when he breathed into man's nostril. Life began with his breath. He is the physical source of life. We cannot have life without God. Life is God's most essential gift to every human being. God has given us this gift of life. But then also and more importantly, there is a second kind of life, not just physical life, but more importantly, eternal life that can only come from the sun, the light. Look again with both Isaiah, John, and even Jesus says about himself. John chapter 10, verse number 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter and and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were gathered around him saying, were gathered around him saying, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. What is the festival of dedication? A.K.A. the festival of Maccabees or what is commonly called today Hanukkah. Prior to 165 BC, people lived, or the Jewish people lived under, uh, Syrian Greco rule and the kings of Damascus. And there was one particular king, his name was King Antiochus IV. He was out of control. He was an absolute madman. And, and he took control of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and he forced the Jewish people to worship, uh, to abandon worship to their God, our God, and to begin to worship pagan gods. He absolutely forbid reading of the Torah and he said that you need to bow down to these other gods. The ruler was known as such a madman that one of the things he did was he desecrated and violated the temple by sacrificing a pig on the altar and spilling its blood upon the altar. And so as this is going on and the Jewish people are under such tyranny and they, they can't worship God Jehovah, a group of brothers called the Maccabees Four of them, they came together and they, they, they got this army together and they were outmanned and they were outgunned and for three years they fought against this oppression so that they could worship God again and miraculously they gained back control of the land. They gained back control of the temple and they gained back control over being able to worship God and one of the first things that they had to do when they got control of the temple was to go into the temple and there was something called the eternal flame of God in the temple. And uh, it would stay lit all of the time by use of oil. And it was to symbolize the eternal flame of Almighty God, that the, the, the flame of God that was always with the children of Israel. Well, when they got in there to light the eternal flame that obviously had been put out, there was only just enough oil for one day's worth of lighting. All the other oil that was available to them had been, had been uh, desecrated. It was no good for use anymore by the worship time 
idols. And it would take another seven days, one day plus seven days, in order to get the oil prepared so that they can light this eternal flame. But this brother, one of the Maccabees, he went and he lit it anyway. And God miraculously caused that eternal flame to continue to burn until they got the oil ready. And so that's why you have eight days on the Hanukkah, you know, menorah. And it was a celebration that the eternal flame of God was always with him. Now notice what Jesus does. They're saying to Jesus, can you just tell us plainly that you are the son of God? Well, Jesus is in the temple on the day in which they are celebrating this festival of the eternal flame of God. And he doesn't pick any place to go and teach. He picks Solomon's colonnade. Solomon's colonnade was attached to the temple. Josephus, one of the greatest historians of Bible times, he tells us that that part of Solomon's original temple survived to the days of Christ. And this is how, this is how his, historically accurate the scripture is. If we only knew all of the things that were attested to, not just in the scripture, but outside of the scripture, we would never doubt the scripture for one moment. Josephus said this actually was there. And so Jesus walks out onto the temple, uh, of the temple, onto Solomon's colonnade. And this overlooked the valley, and it was a great place for your voice to just carry. And it is from this place that Jesus is teaching while they're asking him, Tell us plainly if you are the Savior. What is Jesus doing? Jesus is letting them know that day, that place, I am the eternal flame of God. I am the judge because what would Solomon do from that place? Solomon as king would rule. He would issue edicts. He would he would judge things from that place. Jesus walks out to that place, and here's what he does. He's saying to everybody, I am the judge of the entire earth. I am judge. I am jury. I'm the first. I'm the last. I'm the eternal flame of God. But what Jesus is doing is he's letting them know this is something that you should be really happy about because I didn't come to judge the world for sin as you may think that God should judge judge the world for sin. He said, what I've come to do is I've come to free the man, free the world from sin by putting the judgment of sin on me so that you can be free. And so Jesus is letting us know that he is the only author of eternal life. That which can separate us from the father is sin. But Jesus came, he took that sin upon himself as the eternal judge of mankind instead of judging you and me for our sin. He judged himself for our sin and he is telling us I am the author of eternal life. You cannot have eternal life without the light of the world, Jesus Christ. But then, number three and lastly, Jesus is the light that gives us joy. See, that news that I just shared with you, that God did not come to count up the world's sins, but rather he came to reconcile the world to himself by putting the judgment for sin on himself is the greatest news of all time. That's why we've said before, the gospel is not good advice. You know, people read the gospel and go, oh, that's pretty good advice right there. That's pretty good advice right there. And it is, but that's not what it's intended to be. It's not intended to be good advice. It's tended to be good news. 
And it's intended to be the greatest news that you could ever hear. If we only truly knew the cost of sin, eternal separation from God, and the price that was paid, the life of the Son of God, God becoming our Savior so that we wouldn't have to be eternally separated from God. It is the greatest news of all time. Go back to the sun. You're depressed by saying inside. You come out, and all of a sudden there's you feel life just invigorated back. It's joyful. Do you remember what the angels said when it, the angels appeared to the shepherd? Luke chapter 2, verse number 10. Do not be afraid. For behold, notice again, notice the language. Like, we think behold is just King James. You know, we think if it was today, he would just say, well, just look. No, no. It's bigger than just, it's bigger than just look. It's like, you don't understand what you are actually having to witness right now. Behold, this is like bigger than anything I can ever tell you. For behold, I bring you good tidings. And notice the word, great joy. In the original language, it means gargantuan joy. It means joy that is, that is far and away better than any joy you've ever experienced in your life, which shall be for all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. What is he telling us? He's telling us that God came to save us from our sins so that we can have relationship with him. And perhaps this doesn't bring us the kind of joy it should because we don't realize how big the miracle of the incarnation was. That God has come, not from a distance, he has come from a distance, but not to stay distant from us, but rather to be face to face with us. Think about this from the perspective of the Old Testament patriarchs. Whenever God appeared to them in the Old Testament, it was terrifying. I mean, God appears to Abraham as a smoking furnace. It's pretty terrifying. By the way, that's also light. God appears to Moses, how? As a burning bush. Also pretty terrifying, right? Like you go over, like you hear a voice coming from the bush. I don't know about you, but I'm not hanging around to have that conversation. I'm like, oh, hey. It's kind of terrifying, isn't it? But nevertheless, it's light. God, God appears to Moses from the burning. To Israel as a pillar of fire, also light. To Elijah as an earthquake, a tornado and fire. Again, light. All these quite terrifying. Nobody would see something like, you know, just this this blob kind of like burning and you're hearing voices out of it and be like, oh, that's pretty cool. You'd be like, I'm out of here really quick. Moses then asked God to see him face to face. He says, God, can I, can I see you face to face? I, I don't like talking to you through veils and shadows and behind all these things anymore. Can I talk to you face to face? And God says, it'll kill you if you see me face to face. And so the best I could do is show you my back. Moreover, when Moses comes down from the mountain, you remember after speaking with God and getting the Ten Commandments, he has to veil his face because the glory of God is shining so bright from him that anybody else that looks upon Moses would be killed. And so basically the picture we get from the Old Testament people in terms of their encounter or relationship with God is that it's veiled. It cannot be intimate or as intimate as God wants it to be. It is scary. It is is terrifying. Now imagine if Moses were present today and, and, and he knew the message of Christmas or heard it. Namely, that light has come, dawned upon the darkness, has made his dwelling among us, 
has become one of us to have personal relationship with us. Do you know what Moses would do? Moses would go, do you understand what this means? This is the very thing that I was denied. This means that you can have through Jesus Christ a personal face-to-face relationship with God. Do you understand what it means that you can come boldly into the throne of grace and find grace and mercy to help in time of need? Do you realize what's going on? Moses would say, where is your amazement? Where is your gargantuan joy? This is not a pillar of fire. This is not a burning bush. This is not a smoking uh, furnace. This is light, the light of the world in the form of a baby. Because this time, he's not come to judge the world for their sin, but rather put judgment on himself for their sin. So he could take the barrier away from himself and and, and humanity so we can have relationship with him. The light has come as a baby. Is there any other greater picture of life and joy than a baby? I mean, I don't know about you, but your whole world could be crashing down. And, and you see a little baby. And what happens? Smile to your face. Immediately. What is God telling us? That it is this relationship and only this relationship that can bring us the kind of joy that you and I are looking for. A joy that is greater than any other joy, a joy that the world can't steal and and, 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 and the world can't give you and the, the world can't take it away. A joy that is there when life is good and when life is not, when things are going your way and when things aren't going your way, when things turn out to be a bed of roses and when things are like a living hell. Jesus has come to give you joy and it is only through this relationship that you can have it. And we all know Life can steal your joy, can it? If you let it. I mean, life life can beat you up and spit you out if you let it. I mean, that was the case with the Grinch, wasn't it? You remember his story? You know, he was a little boy and kind of a little different, but accepted by his peers and his culture. And, and he was in the second grade, and, and he liked this girl. You remember what her name was? Martha May. And he got, it was Christmas time, and so he shaved. He got all dressed up in the second grade. He was shaving just to meet Martha May, and it brings her in the Christmas gift. But when he shaved, he hacked up his entire face. You remember that? And, and, and so when he went into school, everybody started making fun of him, and he got really upset, and he smashed the gift and he stormed off and he went into isolation and he lived in Mount Crumpet all by himself for the foreseeable future. But there was one relationship that gave the Grinch his joy back. You remember her? Cindy Lou. Cindy Lou would not give up on the Grinch. She was a little child. And she went to visit him where he was in Mount Crumpet. And the Grinch tried to push her away and the Grinch tried to tell her, you know, you shouldn't be here and I don't want to have anything to do with you. But she would never give up despite his faults, despite his weaknesses, despite the things that he was causing himself. She was able because of her constant belief in him and because she went to where he was through that relationship, the Grinch got his, his joy back. Do you know what? There's another relationship. I see Jesus in Cindy Lou. Because you know what he did? He visited us on our Mount Crumpet. 
He left where he was. He came to where we were. He wouldn't give up on us. He wouldn't leave us in our hopelessness. He wouldn't leave us abandoned. He wouldn't leave us in our depression. He wouldn't leave us in that state. He came and visited us and he gave us. And if we will receive this relationship with him, we will have a joy that is absolutely amazing. Why, why is this relationship with Jesus something that produces such joy, a joy unspeakable and full of glory, a joy that surpasses all the pains of the world, a joy that remains no matter what, a joy that, quite frankly, many of the saints in the Bible understood. You remember the Apostle Paul, what he said? He said, I'm glad in God. Far happier than you would ever guess. Why? Because if you looked at the Apostle Paul's life, there were times where there was nothing for him to be naturally happy for. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He experienced hunger and thirst, and he experienced betrayal. Everything that you can experience, he experienced. But he would say, I'm, I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad in God. Far happier than you would ever guess. If you looked at me, you'd be like, I could totally understand why you're not happy. He's like, I'm far happier than you would think. He says, I've learned by now how to be quite content, whatever my circumstances. I'm just as happy with little as with much. With much as with little. In other words, my happiness is not dependent upon how things are going in my life. I found something in life. He said, I found the recipe. Oh, Christmas recipes are wonderful, aren't they? Here's the best one yet. He said, I found the recipe for being happy. Whether full or hungry, hands full or hands empty, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. Here's what he said. He said, here's a recipe for joy. It's got one ingredient in it. Jesus. A relationship with Jesus produces a joy that is different than any joy that you can get from any other circumstance in life. Now, why, why, why? It's a joy that comes from the assurance of knowing he's in charge. I mean, think about that first Christmas. Have you ever wondered? Think about it through the eyes of Joseph. You ever wonder what it meant to Joseph? It meant that he had to give up his credibility. Think about Joseph, right? All Joseph's friends were going to say to him, either you got her pregnant out of marriage or she's been unfaithful to you. Joseph couldn't tell them the truth. Imagine if he tried to explain that. to No, 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 seriously. No, guys, really, really. Mary's not like that. And I'm not like that either. We, we both love God. Um, it was the Holy Spirit. Imagine the stairs. Imagine how gullible they thought he was. But that first Christmas, Joseph had to give up his credibility. It also meant he had to give up full control because when the angel appeared to Joseph, the angel said, here's what his name is going to be. Jesus In Bible times, in that culture, the father was given the right to name the child. And what that meant was he is the head of the family. But notice when the angel appears to Joseph, he starts off the relationship and he says, he says, uh, you don't get to name this child. And in our relationship with God, and what that meant was right from the get-go of this relationship, you have to give up full control. And in our relationship with God, don't we love to name Jesus? Don't we love to name him? We want, we want a relationship with Jesus on our terms. God, on our conditions. We want everything that God has, but we're only willing to obey some of what God asks. 
And in that process, what are we doing? We're naming Jesus. We think we, we have control. And God wants us to know that when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, guess what you have to do? You have to give up your right to be in control. And at first, this may seem scary and worrisome and, 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 and fill you with anxiety because I don't know about you, but, but I like being in control. But then, in your relationship with God, you realize what a joy it is to let Him be in, in control. I heard about just the other day a pastor who doesn't have to, but, but works one day a week in a job outside the church. My son was telling me this, I think. And, and the reason why he does this is because he enjoys being told what to do. Because in every other environment, he's the one in charge. And he enjoys the beauty of not having the burden of being in control. And I found out this in my relationship with Jesus. There's a beauty in not carrying the burden of being in control. Of knowing that, that God is in control. I can't think, think about jo- Joseph. How was Joseph able to have such peace when he faced public ridicule for being crazy and gullible and feeling heartbroken? God sent an angel to confirm to him that Mary was telling the right thing. God was in control. How did Joseph have such peace when there was no room for them in the end? God was in control. How did, how did Joseph have such peace when he found out that, that, he, that, that he was being hunted by Herod and that he couldn't return home and that he had to go to Egypt? God was in control. How do you have such peace knowing I, I can't go back home right now? I have to give up my family. I have to give up my job. I have to give up my career. I have to give up all my resources. How do you have such peace? God was in control. And he said, Pastor, well, why does that give us peace? Because here's the thing I found out. When God is in control, when we submit to God being in control, God always comes through when he's in control. He always does. Every single time. With Joseph, he was bewildered. How can this be? Should I put her away? And the angel comes and says, Mary's story is straight. God came through because God was in charge. And when there was no room for him in the end, where am I going to have this baby? Where is there going to be a place for us to, to give birth to our child? And God provides not just any place, but the perfect place for a lamb to be born. Stable. God came through because God was in control. And when Joseph was like, okay, what am I going to do now? How, what, uh, Herod is hunting me. What do I do? An angel appears to him in a dream and says, you got to go to Egypt because somebody's hunting you. God came through because God was in control. Well, if I go to Egypt and I don't go back home, what, how am I going to provide for my family? And God sends three wise men or five wise men or ten wise men, we don't know how many, to him with gold, frankincense, and myrrh, enough value for them to live off of it for two years while he was being hunted God came through because God was in control watch those little wires there Trevor. what happened when he was waiting to go back home and he couldn't Herod died God came through because God was in control and here's why this relationship with Christ produces a joy you can't get anywhere else because we unburden ourselves of the outcome. You know where, where lack of joy comes from, anxiety and worry? 
it's when you're worried about the outcome. You're fixating on the outcome. How, how am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get through this sickness? How, how am I going to get through the loss of this loved one? How am I going to get through this, this relationship mess up right here? How am I going to get through all of what's going on in life? You, you start getting worried about the outcome. But here's the beauty of our relationship with God. We don't get to name him. He gets to be in charge 100% of the time. And when that happens, we put the outcome in the hands of God, the greatest and safest place for the outcome to be. And there's a joy that comes from that because you know who God is. And the same way he promised to come through for those who lived underneath the old covenant in the Bible to us, he says the same for you. He says, all things will work together for your good. For those who love me and are called according to my purpose. What's he saying? It's the greatest news that you can ever hear. Because number one, you get saved from your sin. You have eternal life. But number two, you enter into a relationship with God. Where he gets to be in control. Moses would say... Do you realize what's going on here? Where is your joy? Where's your amazement? A light has shined upon those living in the land of deep darkness. This light is Jesus. He came to dispel evil and to give us hope. He came to give us eternal life. And a joy that surpasses anything that this world could ever give us. Can you say amen? Would you stand to your feet with me?